Well, good morning, family. Good to see you. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, this last week, as you knew, I was in New York City uh, with some missionary colleagues, and I just wanted to give you kind of a, a report on what happened. Uh, I was there uh, because we were trying to do some research on what it looked like to uh, evangelize the unreached people groups that live in New York City. Now, most of the time we think about the, the groups all around the world who have not yet heard the gospel, and we totally forget that there are people right here in the United States that have never heard of the gospel, never heard of Jesus, they've never read a Bible, or the Bible is not in their language. But uh, we went to work with an organization in New York City that's focused on uh, the unreached people groups of that city, and they found there are uh, 52 unreached people groups present in New York City. And uh, wow, wow, what a challenge that was for me, because we are now realizing that we don't have to go to a country where it's very difficult to get in as missionaries, but they're coming to us. It's as if God is saying that I'm going to help the world hear the gospel by bringing representatives to the United States, and then the church has the privilege of witnessing to them. So it was great to be in New York City focusing on cultural groups. Normally I was, I've been in New York City a couple other times and it was mostly focused on uh, entertainment or vacation and we'd go to the normal places that people go as a tourist. But uh, we were focused on going to neighborhoods. There might be three blocks on this street and those three blocks people from this country live and then you turn left and then there's a whole new country represented. And so let me just read to you just a very few of the neighborhoods that we walked through. By the way, I walked 49 miles and 377 stories of stairs in four days. Yes, I'm sore. Thank you for asking. Here are some of the, uh, the neighborhoods. Nepal, Afghanistan, uh, China, Italy, West Africa, many Mediterranean uh, neighborhoods such as Greece and Spain, Bangladesh, India, many Arabic neighborhoods. Uh, the last day that I was there, I just happened to go search for the best pastrami sandwich in New York City. And as I was walking, I was on the Greek street where the sandwich shop was, and I just turned right, and all of a sudden I realized I was in, I was in little Morocco. And then there was a store that was, that was Egyptian, and you would go down further and you could see the, you could see hookah bars, the, the, the a very Arabic uh, 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 bars where they would smoke and drink, and, and it was very much of a, of a Arabic Middle East feel from Egypt and Iraq and Persian stores, and you could buy a Persian rug, and this, I mean, I was eating it up because it was just a wonderful way for uh, me to recognize that, that we're not all alike, and God is bringing people together, and this, this organization that we were working with, they were very focused on making sure that all of those neighbors, neighborhoods heard the gospel. This is the one thing, there were many things that I learned, but my takeaway was this. 
This organization was very intentional in knowing their neighbors. We talk about the importance of knowing our neighbors, but there's this thing called the cocooning of the United States. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's basically we drive to our neighborhood in a car that's covered. We drive into our garage and then close the door and we do life in our closed house and then we get in our car, push a button and open the door and drive back out of our neighborhoods. We're cocooned most of the time and rarely do we know the first name of our neighbor or even invite them to our home. What if? What if we were intentional in finding out the names of those who live across the fence? What if we as a church begin to pray by name for everyone that lived around us and we prayed for an opportunity just to be their friend? If I were to do, if I were to have you raise your hands and I won't take the time right now, my guess is the majority of you would say, I accepted Christ because someone that I knew, loved, and trusted invited me just into a right relationship. And yes, they might have invited me to a church service, but it was because of that relationship that I took serious this invitation to follow Jesus. Rarely ever does somebody just come to church for the first time, hear the gospel, and accept Christ as their personal Savior. That's very rare, but it's in relationships with people that you know, love, and trust. That's when they say, you know what, I want what you have. Can you talk to me about that? So let's just pray together. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I sense that God's been moving in my heart, and uh, I want God to be moving in our church. I want us to not live in a cocoon society. I want us to to begin to get to know our neighborhood neighbors and invite them into relationship and have coffee. And it could be years, four, five, six years before finally you have the trust capital where they can say, I trust you enough. Talk to me about your Jesus. Does that make sense? Would you pray with me that God would begin to lead all of us to know what that means for our church? I'm going to be praying that way. Now it's sermon time. That was just, that was the first sermon. Here's the second sermon. In the early 2000s, uh, Darla and I and the boys, they were very young at the time. We lived in Manila, Philippines as missionaries. And I remember walking into my office on September the 12th, 2001. You got it in your head? September the 12th. 2001. And I picked up the newspaper on the counter and I saw a plane crashing into the towers in New York City. Because we didn't have a TV back then, uh, we didn't know what was happening in New York until 12 hours later. It was our morning. I immediately went home uh, when, uh, we actually, uh, I get, got Darla, the boys are in school, I got Darla, and we went to a, a colleague's home, and we watched the news like all of you were watching the news. It was your evening of September the 11th. I know it was difficult in the, in the States the days following with uh, air flights shut down, uh, but Darla and I lived in a country where Al-Qaeda 
would hide among the thousands of islands down in the south of our country. Many believe that even Osama bin Laden had, had come to the Philippines and was hiding in the Philippines because his wife was a Filipina. And unfortunately, that next week, I had to fly to South Korea. I was in charge of a theology conference. I couldn't get out of it. I really didn't want to leave my family, but Darla and I talked about it, and I just had to go. Uh, Darla and I had the dreaded discussion about what to do if we had to leave quickly. There were whole lots of questions that all of us had, uh, not just in the Philippines, but even those of you who are in the United States wondered what was going to happen, what was upon us, what was around the corner. And we begin to have that question, uh, that, that discussion, what would we do if I could not reunite with Darla and the boys quickly and they had to fly somewhere? What would happen? What would they have to pack? What if I couldn't get out of South Korea? So we had long talks the night before I left. We created GoPacks. Do you know what a GoPack is? We created GoPacks for everyone in our family. It was basically a, a very small suitcase, and it included passports, identification, uh, extra money, uh, a, a little f uh, food, clothing for three or four days, just what you had to have immediately. And with those bags, we could leave our home within minutes. We bought extra food. We actually bought a TV to watch the news. I decided that when I arrived in South Korea, back then in the early 2000s, you couldn't use your uh, a mobile phone in another country, so I had to rent a phone in the, the, the airport there in South Korea just so I could keep connected to my family. We talked about which country we would meet in, if something went bad, if she could not fly back to the United States, she would fly to Australia and I would meet her in Australia because no one ever attacked Australia, right? I don't know why it is. <laughs> we were preparing. We tried to wrestle with the bad news. We tried to comfort each other. We tried to prepare even though our hearts were heavy. That was the scene of John chapter 13 and 14 in the upper room. Jesus had told the disciples some very heavy news. He told them previously that he was headed to Jerusalem to die. That was pretty heavy news. He told them that one of their own, he didn't give a name, one of their own would betray the Messiah. He told them that one of their leaders would deny him. He told them that Satan was at work against all of the disciples and that they should prepare for persecution. They were completely bewildered, they were discouraged, they didn't know what was around the next corner, and the, and the cumulative weight of all of these bits of bad news must have depressed them. 
And the disciples had questions. Peter said, but where are you going? And Thomas said, how can we go with you? And Philip said, how will we know the Father? And Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas said, why will you show yourself to us and not the world? I can just hear our boys asking those same types of questions, but dad, what's going on here? They had a lot of questions. They had worries and concerns and, and what ifs. But Jesus is so kind to spend some quiet moments in the upper room with some, some real comforting words of assurance. In fact, if you read this passage in chapter 14, you'll find that he gives us six assurances. And he starts his teaching with words of comfort to his hurting disciples. And he says in 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The great thing is these assurances have never changed. And they're our assurance as well. So the first thing he says in chapter 13 36 and later, he says, you are going to heaven with me. That's the first thing he tells them. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Now, this is great news for the disciples. They'd received such bad news from Jesus, and they were wrestling with him leaving, and now they hear that they get to meet up with Jesus in heaven. That's really good news for the disciples. And I think sometimes we feel like we have to be cute and describe heaven in such poetic ways and I'm simple enough to believe that understanding this passage is just as plain as he explains it here. You see, he is saying that heaven is a place where, fa where the Father dwells. Heaven is a place where the Father dwells. This word Father is used 53 times in John 13 through 17. Jesus, in this last discourse before the, the cross, the very last few days of his life, he is constantly talking to the disciples about who their father is. Some years ago, a London newspaper held a contest to determine what the best definition of home was. The winning entry was this. Home is a place where you are treated the best and you complain the most. <laughs> I can tell you I'm confident that we won't complain when we get to heaven. Heaven is my father's house, according to the Son of God. It's home for his children. The poet Robert Frost said that home is the place that when you arrive there, they have to take you in. 
That's a good definition. He also said that heaven is a home with ample provision for all. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. It, it simply means rooms or abiding places. So, unfortunately, there's been some songs in our past that talks about uh, that we have all these lovely mansions in glory, but the Greek talks about that we have a home, we have a room in God's mansion, in God's home. But the fact is that Jesus Christ is right now preparing a place for us in his home. That had to be great news for the disciples. And can I tell you, with the more and more of my loved ones who have gone already to their home, I want to be in that home as well. And he says, heaven is a place prepared specifically for you. I am going to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a place that's created specifically for me and my enjoyment and, and the privilege that I have to be with my Father and the same promises for you. And then he says that I, Jesus, will come back and bring us with him. Verse 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's all good news. It was in a context of the disciples wondering what is around the corner and Jesus says, listen, I'm preparing a place for you that you can come live with me. That's a great assurance. There's a second assurance. He says, you can personally know the Father right now. John was very determined to pass on to the readers of this gospel the importance of both knowing and believing that Jesus was the, the Messiah. Because of this, he used certain words over and over, and one of those words you might want to just write on the title page of, of uh, John, he used the word know, K-N-O-W, 141 times in the gospel. 141 times. What Jesus meant when he said that they would know the Father in verse 7 was that they would have the same deep fellowship, the same deep communion with the Father as they had with Jesus, the one that they could touch and feel in that upper room. Now that was great news for the disciples. Jesus was saying that the same type of warm relationship that they had with him, they also could have with the Father. Put yourself in, con in the context of the disciples who they didn't have that warm, loving relationship with the Father historically. The Messiah had come. They had deep relationship with this 
man that walked with them for three and a half years, but they were just now catching a glimpse that this relationship that they had with Jesus, they could also have with the Father himself. In other words, Jesus was saying, don't worry, guys. What you see and what you experience in my relationship with you, you will have the same with the Father. That was great news for the disciples, and it should be for us as well. The third assurance was this. You can have the privilege of talking to me in prayer. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. In the church that I grew up in, and probably many of you, we sang an old hymn, and there's no doubt that you remember these words, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because... We do not carry everything to God in prayer. Anybody remember that song? Good song. However, Jesus explains that if God is going to answer our prayers and give us peace, there are certain conditions that we must meet. The first thing he says in verse 12 is that we must pray in faith. In the King James Version, it's translated, verily, verily, I say unto thee. That's what Jesus says. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. This double verily, verily assures us that this is a very solemn announcement and that you need to listen. Basically, in our English, he is basically saying, listen up what I'm about to say about successfully praying is really, really important. Here it is. Believe in me and I will answer your prayer. That's what he was saying to the disciples. Listen up. This is really important. Believe in me and I will answer your prayer. Here's something else he is saying. That we must pray in Christ's name. Now, I'm not talking about some magical formula that we force God to do certain things if we say the name of Jesus. Unfortunately, there's plenty of name it and claim it evangelists on TV on Sunday mornings who teach that. Best thing to do is shut the TV off, go back to your Bible. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing with me. If you don't agree with me, come talk to me. Listen, praying in Jesus' name means that we ask what Jesus would ask. What would please Jesus? And what would bring him the most glory? That's what asking in Jesus' name means. Ask what Jesus would ask. Ask what pleases him and what would bring him glory. On Wednesday night in my class, if you've been there, I talk often about praying the scriptures. Every scripture, every verse is true. What if we begin to use the scripture and begin to pray the scripture? 
when a friend says to you, uh, make sure you tell the salesman or the guy at the reservation desk that I sent you. That basically says, uh, take my name, my good name, my relationship with this person and mention my name to him and he will realize that you and I are really good friends and maybe he will give you what you need. That's basically what praying in Jesus' name means. It, it means I'm going ahead of you. I'm standing beside you. You're asking in a way that honors me and God will hear. And then he says, we must pray in loving obedience. In verse 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you will obey what I command. You see, when you love someone, you honor his or her name. You would never use that name in a demeaning manner. Basically, it's this. If you expect your prayers to be answered, Jesus is saying, you are expected to love and obey Jesus. It's simple as that. If you expect to have your prayers answered, you are expected to love and obey Jesus. So don't expect to have your prayers answered and you're currently living in sin. Don't pray, Lord, don't get me, don't let me get pregnant when you're getting out of your boyfriend's bed. Don't expect your prayers to be answered if you're fudging on your taxes. Is there an amen in the house yet? Don't expect that God will answer your prayers for financial help when you're not even giving God your best and your first as he commands. Don't expect your prayers to be answered if you're disobeying what Jesus has already told you. Well, Jesus continues to give his nervous and anxious disciples the good news. He gives a fourth assurance. He says, you have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks often about the Holy Spirit in these last few days. He knows they will need to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And we'll spend some time in the next several weeks on who the Holy Spirit, because Jesus talks often about him in these last few chapters. But Jesus says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So Jesus now introduces the Holy Spirit in two different ways, two different names. The first is he is going, he says the Holy Spirit is another comforter. Now that word comforter in the Greek is the word paraclete and it means to uh, called alongside to assist. That's what paraclete or comforter means. Now we in the English Use a word, advocate. If I say to you, I will be your advocate in this conflict, you know what that means. If a 
if you hire a lawyer and that lawyer goes to court with you, he becomes your advocate to the judge. He comes alongside of you, gives you wisdom and gives you counsel and gives you comfort and, and tells you what the next steps are. And he then goes on your behalf to the judge to speak for you. That's a paraclete. That's the advocate. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you another comforter. When I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit another comforter to you. Can you imagine what that means to the scared disciples? He gives another name. He says, it's not just the Holy Spirit is another comforter, but he is the spirit of truth. Jesus was promising that he would send the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus himself had done during his ministry. He was a truth speaker. He gave them wisdom and understanding and perspective and enlightened their minds. And Jesus is now saying what I have done for the last three and a half years, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, your advocate will do exactly the same thing. That's great news for us. I can't tell you I can tell you that you have never had Jesus standing beside you in physical form. I have not. That would have been a privilege, but I can tell you the Holy Spirit has stood beside me over and over and over and over. I've opened the Word, and He's talked to me. I've woken up in the middle of the night, and He has spoken to me. I've been lost, and He's given me direction. He's given me wisdom, and He's convicted me of sin. That's the Holy Spirit at work, truth speaking. The Holy Spirit, my advocate, and your advocate comes alongside. Is there an amen in the house? Jesus was promising I may be up there, but my Holy Spirit is coming down to walk this life with you. You lose nothing, disciples, because he will be your advocate, the spirit of truth. He gives a fifth assurance. He says, you will enjoy the Father's love. I'm going to start reading verse 21. He says, the person who knows my commandments and keeps them. That's who loves me. And the person who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and make myself plain to him. Jesus knew that his disciples were going to feel the loss of their best friend. He was going to leave and they may, may feel orphaned. They may feel insecure, unloved, anxious, confused, lost, orphaned. But he had a promise. He said, you will know that I and the Father are one. He says, be confident that if you have the Father, you have me. We are one. He says, I will live in you and you will never be alone. 
that's good news for the disciples. They were hours away from losing Jesus, and they didn't know exactly what was coming. Jesus did, but I promise you, they looked back to this event in the upper room when Jesus began to give them promise after promise, and this was one that was so significant to them. The scripture is clear. When the sinner trusts Christ, he is born again. The Spirit immediately enters his heart and bears witness that he is a child of God. The Holy Spirit then takes up residence in that home and counsels and comforts and cleans and advocates, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in that one who believes. And when the believer begins to yield to the Father and loves the Word, and prays and obeys, there's this deep relationship that is beginning with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the work of God in our own hearts when we believe. Charles Spurgeon once said, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. There was a last assurance and this was a biggie. Jesus says, you will have the gift of peace. Jesus ends this lesson exactly how he started it, promising peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now I imagine these words of promised peace soaked into their, their hearts like a dry sponge. They really needed peace at this moment. They were desperate to hear words of comfort. They were desperate for wholeness because they were broken. They knew something painful was coming. They didn't quite understand why or how it would happen, but they knew that Jesus kept talking about it. He had told them that they would be persecuted for their faith, and that would have to scare anyone. And now Jesus promises them that they will have peace when he leaves them. That is so opposite. When he starts talking about shalom or peace here, remember that shalom means something totally different in the Hebrew culture and language. It's not what we know peace to be. We define peace in our Western understanding as the absence of conflict. That's not how a Hebrew Jew understood shalom. The Hebrew under, understanding of peace meant health and wholeness in all things, body, mind, spirit. It meant 
completeness. It meant health and security, even prosperity in its best sense. That's the understanding of shalom in a Hebrew culture. And when you're enjoying God's peace, there is joy and there's contentment, but God's peace is not the peace that the world offers. So Jesus' last assurance to the disciples was wholeness I leave with you. Completeness I give to you. Can you imagine what that felt like to the disciples' ears when one of the last things Jesus says to them was, I give you completeness, health and security and wholeness for all of your body, mind, and spirit. Knowing that their world was about to be rocked and challenged and changed, Jesus' last words to them was that they would realize that he wasn't leaving them alone. That they would know the Father just as personally as they knew him. He promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to comfort them and become their advocate, to lead them into truth. He promised they would pray and he would immediately hear and answer. He promised that they would be loved by their Father. That they would be able to live in complete peace that would bring health and wholeness to their mind and their body and spirit. And I can tell you, if I were one of those disciples, I would have felt such a great amount of peace and security in that very moment. The fact is, I am a disciple, and so are you. These same promises Jesus gives to each one of us in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our confusion, in the middle of our illness, in the middle of our challenges and conflict, he gives us exactly what he does for the disciples. So even today, Jesus tells us, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Would you please stand? There are some books that we read to our, our little boys when they were little that became their favorites and ours. There were a few that they wanted us to read to them so often that they began to memorize the words. You remember your kids memorizing the words and they would repeat the words and they would get 
to the pages before we would even get to the pages. They knew it so well, which really backfired when us dads tried to skip stories because we were falling asleep. Did you ever do that? You can't get by with that when your kids memorize the books. They will remind you there's four pages that you skipped. But there was one book that it seemed that I always had a lump in my throat every time I read it to them. It represented such, such a level of love from a parent. It was called Love You Forever by Robert Munch. I don't know if you've ever read that book. The story is about a mother who loved her son dearly. And as often as she could, she would sing softly to him as she rocked him to sleep. She would sing, she would whisper in, her, in his ear, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the little baby grew up into a little boy and her response was the same. She would find times when maybe he was falling asleep and he, she would come over to him and try to cuddle him because now that he was an older boy, he didn't like to cuddle much, but she would take the opportunity while he was asleep that he, she would wrap her arms around him and she would begin to sing to him, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the boy grew older. He became a teenager and got kind of rough around the edges. But even as a young boy, he had to fall asleep sometime. So mom would go over to him and while he slept, she would sing. And even after he became an adult and he got his own family, and now she had grandchildren, that son was still her little baby. And she would take opportunities during those long hugs uh, goodbye. And she would whisper in his ear, and he loved it. She would say, honey, I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Call me mushy, but there is no doubt in my mind that this level of love is what Jesus desired to communicate with the disciples. And he wants us to understand that type of love as well. And even though Christ has gone to heaven and is busy preparing a place for us, he has sent his Holy Spirit down to us so that we might live Christ-like lives. And even then, there are opportunities that he comes close to us and he begins to whisper to us, I'll love you forever. I'll like you 
for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Would you receive this benediction? The disciples were hungry for words of promised peace. And we live with that same desire today. May you receive these words from Christ himself. Peace, I leave with you. My peace 
I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> and do not be afraid. <laughs> now, <laughs> in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, listen, go in peace for he has already gone before you. You're dismissed.